wow, as far as I'm concerned, we can sing for another hour and then have the lesson. Those songs were wonderful and appreciate everybody singing out tonight. This morning we began a little two-part sermon mini-series entitled, Can We All Understand the Bible Alike? The inspiration for this lesson and some of the quotes within it came from Brother Phil Sanders and a series of lessons that he taught some years ago back at the Nashville School of Preaching. This morning, we explored how contrary to public opinion and people's excuses as to why they don't want to study the Bible, contrary to those, we saw how the Bible is meant to be understood by all people. That's one of the reasons Jesus came, as we talked about this morning at the close of the lesson in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. We saw this morning that contrary to public opinion and people's excuses about the Bible as to why they don't study it, that the Bible was not designed, nor was it meant to say different things to different people. That's not how it was written. Therefore, it is critically important to understand that the Bible means every single word it said just as God put it in there. We saw that this morning, Matthew 4 and verse 4. We also saw in our sermon this morning how the New Testament's one faith, one doctrine, one Savior, one baptism, are for all people of all times and all cultures till the Lord comes to take us home. This morning, if we were kind of involved in the lesson and thinking about it, we could also see and understand how sincerity alone was repeatedly shown to not be enough to get somebody into heaven. Just simply believing that they were was not enough. We must continue to study to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. We saw this morning how we must study and obey and abide in God's word in order to be set free from sin and death and error, John 8, 31 through 47 and 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18. We saw this morning why it's important that we continue to study and to grow in our studies and to continue to learn so that there will be an entrance into heaven guaranteed for us, as it says in 2 Peter 1, 2 through 11. However, this morning, one of the popular beliefs that we dealt with is the second part of this statement. The entire statement is, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. This is one of the excuses people use. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to. The idea seems to be floating around that if you take a passage of scripture and read it to a group of people, there will be as many interpretations of that passage as there are people in that room. And we saw this morning that that's not true, that second part, didn't we? We saw this morning how that's not true at all. We dealt with the second part of that statement. Tonight, I want for us to really take on and consider the first part of that statement. The first part of that statement is, well, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. How many of you have heard that in some form or fashion? You get studies, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. 
That's what I want us to look at because you know something? I'm going to tell you right up front that you really cannot. You really can't. In reality, and this is what people need to understand, in reality, you cannot make the Bible say something it doesn't. You only have two options. You can either take it as it's written, or you can deny what's written, but you can't change it. And I think that's what we need to have people understand. Let me say it again. You can actually either accept what the Bible says in all of its fullness, all of its harmony, and all of its perfection, or you, if you're one of those people that wants to twist it and make it fit your own agenda, you're not really changing what the Bible says. You're not really making it say anything different. You're just rejecting what it does say. That's what it comes down to. And I want to give you an example of this. If you go to the website, www.billygraham.org, in their question and answer session, there's a question on there. Somebody has posted a question. The question is this. Is baptism essential for salvation? This question is asked of the Billy Graham organization. This is their response. To one who has received Christ, number one, I want to see that phrase in the Bible where somebody received Christ. Okay? They're starting off with a false premise. You're not going to see that this group of people heard the gospel and received Christ. But we'll go with their faulty premise. They say, to one who has received Christ, baptism is a necessary and meaningful experience. You may know that we urge immediate and extensive Bible study for each convert. As the scripture is reviewed, the place of baptism will surely be discovered. That's what it says on the website. If you're converted and you've received Jesus, we urge that you get into the Bible and that you really study about baptism. Okay? What happens when I bump up against 1 Peter 3.21 that says, Baptism doth now save you. Is that what the scripture says? That's what it says. Baptism doth now also save you. So what do I do with that if I believe that I was saved some other way? If I'm a new convert who supposedly received Jesus, something that I don't see them doing in the scripture, all the thousands of examples of conversion, and now that I, I believe I've received Jesus, you want me to study baptism, and I study it, and I find out that baptism is what actually saves you, 1 Peter 3.21. I find out that baptism is what actually washes my sins away, Acts 22 and verse 16. But anyway, they continue on their website, and this is what they say. Remember, they're responding to the question about Baptism. They're responding to the question, is baptism essential for salvation? They continue. If baptism were a requirement for salvation, we would certainly say that. But you couldn't support that knowing, for example, that the thief on the cross had no opportunity for baptism or church membership. Of course the thief on the cross had no opportunity at that point or baptism or church membership because neither one of those things had been established in connection with salvation. I could stand here tonight and say to you, what's wrong with you people? Nobody has ever experienced time travel? 
Nobody's, nobody's come up with a way to travel time, have they? Time travel, time, time travel, really, Doug? Time travel has not been established, is that right? You can't do it yet. Well, guess what? The church didn't come into existence until Acts 2. The church came into existence long after the thief on the cross died. And the Bible tells us that baptism is where we meet the blood of the new covenant, and the new covenant didn't take effect until Acts 2. Of course the thief on the cross didn't need to be baptized because he lived and died under the old covenant, according to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He lived and died under the old covenant. But that's not really my point tonight. My point is this. Question. Did they, with their answer, make the Bible say something other than what it did? No. They simply rejected what it does say. And that's the key, folks. We cannot make the Bible say what we want it to. We cannot change what it says. We either accept it or we reject it. But we can't alter it to make it say what we want it to. Those folks, by denying what it actually says, didn't change a word of it, not a whit. And I want to show you, I want to show you why we can't change it, why we can't make the Bible say what we want it to. I want to show you why. Open your Bibles tonight to the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, will you? Please. Psalm 119. Let's look at verse 160. Psalm 119 is one of my favorite psalms in the entire Bible, probably because it's so long. <laughs> but it's really good. I'm going to show you why we can't make the Bible say something other than what it does, why we can only accept it as written or reject it, but we can't fix it, we can't change it. Psalm 119, verse 160, watch this. The psalmist says, David says, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Did what God I'm wording it wrong. Is what God written going to stand forever? Guess what that means? That means you and I can't mess with it, change it, make it say something else. In reality, we can either accept what it says or deny it, but we can't tamper with it. Turn to me to Psalm 19. Let's drop 100 Psalms backwards. Psalm 19. I want to show you something. Psalm 19, let's look at verses one through six. Another Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line, that is the heavens line, the heavens is what he's talking about, verse one. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Stop right there. What's David saying? He's saying, David uh, he's saying God created the heavens. Right? See that in verses 1 and following. And in those heavens, as a part of that process, God has put the sun. And the sun rises and makes its circuit every day. You see that? Verses 1 through 6? 
Can we alter the circle of the sun? Can we change the sun's rotation? Can we make it come from the west back to the east? We can't tamper with it, can we? We do not have the power to get to it and alter what God has created to govern the physical universe. We can't get there from here, as we used to say in Maine. We can't tamper with it, it's so far above us. And did you notice in this psalm, right after he talks about the physical world, he goes right into the spiritual world and he goes right into the word of God. And, and it's not coincidence. It's not coincidence that after he talks about the sun and the heavens, which we can't get to to tamper with, we can't change them, we can't make the sun back up, then he begins talking about God's law in the very next verse, verse 7. Look what he says. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You see what he's doing? He uses the physical universe to say, hey, you cannot touch what God has created. You cannot alter it. Now he's talking about God's word. You can't make it say what you want, or you can't change it. You can't mess with it, because as we're going to see, it too is forever firmly fixed in heaven. He goes on and says in verse 8, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Okay? So God made the heavens and the sun and all of that, and we can't mess with it. And then he goes on to talk about God's word. God's word is unreachable as far as our being able to mess with it and alter it. How do I know that? Psalm 119, again, verse 89 in the English Standard Version says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. If God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, meaning fixed like concrete that is, that is dried and, and taken form, if God's word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens, can we get to it? Can we get to it? We can't mess with it, can we? We can't change it, we can't alter it, it is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. You remember Jesus' words along the same line in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 16 through 19, where he said, gather up treasure where? In heaven, where moth and rust won't affect it. Do you remember that? We can't mess with what's in heaven. We can't corrupt it. We can't alter it. And guess what? God's word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. What that means is we can't change it. We either accept it or we reject it. But it says what it says and it means what it means and it is forever established by God himself in heaven. Look in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll see the same idea again. 1 Peter chapter 1. If something is forever firmly fixed in the heaven, if, if our inheritance is there and it's, it's incorruptible, which it is, that's what the Bible tells us. It tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercies begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We can't get to that heavenly inheritance while we're still here. It's, it's reserved for us, it's incorruptible, moths can't get to it and eat it away, rust can't get to it and corrode it, it is incorruptible. Well, guess what? God's word is forever firmly fixed in the same heavens. Isn't that what we just saw in Psalm 119, verse 89? Yeah. So what does that mean? It means that God said what he meant, he meant what he said, it's fixed in heaven, it's established here, and we can't reach it to mess with it. So, can't make it say something it doesn't. We either accept it, or we reject it. But we can't make it something else. Look here again in 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 23. It says there in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The last part of verse 25 says, this is the word of the gospel which was preached to you. Again, God's word we cannot alter. Not really. We can't corrupt it. We can't meld it, mold it, make it into something it's not. We just accept it or reject it. So having covered all that we have today, and having exposed some of these lines that people come up with that are nothing but distortions, why is it then that people do still differ in their understanding? God created it his word, and he wrote it down in such a fashion that we can all understand it, we can all be of the same mind, we can all do what it says, it doesn't say different things to different people. It's in heaven where we can't get to it to mess with it. So, how is it even possible then that people still have different conclusions? How is that possible? How is it possible that people do still differ in their understanding of something that was perfectly designed and instituted by God to be easily understood and obeyed by all of those created in his image. Brother Phil Sanders came up with 11 reasons why people, despite all we've covered, will come up with different conclusions. And believe me, it's not because they make the Bible say something, it doesn't, because we can't do that. Here's his 11, and again, this paperwork is out on the table. Give these some thought. Number one, laziness. You think that's got something to do with why people come up with different conclusions on God's word? Laziness. Brother Sanders said, some do not study. They assume what they think the Bible should say based on poor knowledge. I think he's got a point. 2 Peter 3, 16 through 18. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, and Hosea 4, 6. Laziness. Number two, another reason why people still come to different understandings and conclusions. Number two, wishful thinking. <laughs> wishful thinking. Some want God's word to say something so badly that they assume it does say that and they reject all other views. This is especially true of teaching surrounding salvation. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and others. People want the Bible to say something, you know, my great-granddaddy believed this, and my granddaddy believed this, and my daddy believed this, and, and it's just got to be there, and I want it to be there so bad that when I look at the Bible, I'm going to find it even if it ain't there. They wanted to say something so bad 
that they believe it does, and it's just got to. And they convince themselves of that. You know, if my glasses tonight, if I took red lenses and put over my glasses, everything that I saw out there would have a red tint to it, wouldn't it? Same with blue or green. Because I want that color. So everything would be tinted. And sometimes people's wishful thinking tints what they find in the scriptures. Number three, why people still come to differing conclusions. Personal prejudice. Some hold the doctrine because they have been taught it. The Pharisees held the tradition of their fathers and put it before the law or Jesus. John 7, John 9, and Mark 7. You know, if you're taught something long enough, you're going to begin to question whether or not it's true and eventually accept that it is. And so we've got to be careful about that one in particular. Number four, and this is a big one, unteachable because of pride. Pride. Some people are unwilling to admit they are wrong and they're unapproachable. The Bible tells us many times in the New Testament that he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled, right? We've got to be humble enough that if we read something in Scripture and we can see something in Scripture where we're wrong to say, you know what? I was wrong. God's right. But some people, even though they can see it, even though they can read it, even though you have a Bible study and you point it out, there's just so much pride and people cannot admit they're wrong. <laughs> I told you this at one of the marriage seminars over here years ago. One of the dumbest things I ever heard in a marriage was this idea of love is never having to say you're sorry. I don't know where that came from. Love, husbands and wives, means when I mess up, I'm willing to be the first one to jump right out there and say, I messed this up, I'm sorry. That's my mistake, that's on me. That's what love does. Love humbles itself. And when it comes to God, we have got to have a spirit that is not so proud, well, I've got to be right no matter what. We've got to have a spirit that's willing to say, you know what, I was wrong. I've got to be able to say, I was wrong. Can we all look at somebody, you know, when's the last time we told somebody straight up, I was wrong. Can we do that? Because if we're the type of people that can look somebody in the eye and mean it with all our heart and say, you know what, that's on me. I was wrong. That's, that's all me. That was my mistake, my mess up. If we can do that, that goes a long way with making us so much better Christians. I want you to turn to a couple of these passages because this is a big one. People that are unteachable because of pride. Turn to me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 13. This is big. This is big. Sometimes in the church... We have discussions and we go back and forth and, you know, sometimes, it, even preachers, not that preachers are anything special because they were all saved by the same blood and they're no more special or different than anybody that's sitting in the pews. They really ain't. Not in my opinion. But sometimes we've got to be able to look our brethren in the eye when we have a discussion and we're on opposite sides and we've got to be able to look at each other and say, you know what? I was wrong. If somebody proved to me I'm wrong, I've got to be able to say, I, I blew it. Mark, that was on me. You were right and I was wrong. And mean it with every fiber of my being. Because a person that can't do that 
can't be right with God. Look at Proverbs 13 and verse 18. Some people have different conclusions and understandings of the Bible because they're too proud to admit when they're wrong. Proverbs 13, 18 says this. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Look with me in Proverbs 18, verses 1 and 2. Sometimes you have people and they get all wound up and they, get, they just cannot bring themselves to admit that they may be the one that's wrong and they walk out of the church because everybody in the church just hates them and whatever the case may be, right? Proverbs 18, 1. A man who isolates himself, a man who just gets away from everybody else, seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding but in expressing his own heart. We have got to be willing to say, I was wrong when we were, and fix it. <clears throat> Another reason that some people will not understand or come to the same understanding in one mind on scripture, Brother Sanders says, is emotional bias. Some hold such a love for a teacher that they will not consider that their mentor could possibly be wrong. Some have preacheritis. They had that in the Bible, you know. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. You remember that? Turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, these guys had preacheritis. You know, if their teacher said it, it was like, well, it's got to be right because he said it. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. Look what it says. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and same judgment. Hey, have I heard that verse before today? Seems to me uh, there was this little one mind thing that was going on this morning, the first part of the sermon series, we talked about this very verse. These people were, were having problems, they weren't of the same mind, why? Well, because they had preacheritis, verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you, there are divisions. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What was your problem? Hey, if Apollos says it, it's got to be, I don't care what Peter says, if Apollos says it, man, it's got to be right. He is the man. Emotional bias. I knew of a church we had a preacher for a long time, different state. Had a preacher for a long time. This preacher left the pulpit, got a secular job, went out and got very worldly, very, very, very worldly. And you know, because he was so beloved in that congregation where he preached for all those years, many of those people, if he did it, it couldn't be wrong. That was the way they felt. Well, that can't be wrong. He did it. And if he did it, it's got to be okay, even when he completely walked away. Emotional bias will help some people not to come to the same mind. Another thing, the reason why people sometimes will not all understand the truth the same way is the vested interest. Some teach what they are paid to teach, whether it's right or not. <laughs> Don't raise your hands. Have you ever been to one of those funerals where the person that is deceased, and I mean no disrespect for the dead, 
But the person who's deceased wanted nothing to do with any church, nothing to do with Jesus. They were immoral to the nth degree. And you go to that funeral, and what's the preacher say? Oh, he's gone to be with the Lord. I'm thinking, did you know this guy? Because that's what he's paid to say. So we need to be careful here as well, vested interest. And you know the problem, you know, you go to a funeral of somebody that wanted nothing to do with the Lord, nothing to do with church, and the preacher preaches them into heaven. You know the damage that does? You know what the message is that that sends to everybody that's sitting there? You know what the message is? I don't have to believe in Jesus. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do any of that stuff. I can be as immoral as they come, and I'm going to heaven too, because the preacher said he did. Sometimes people come to different understanding on the scripture because of this very thing, a vested interest. Some misunderstand because they're dishonest. They have no integrity or regard for the truth, so they handle the Bible dishonestly. Bible tells us that's going to happen in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. It says, in their greed, these false teachers will make up stories, and they'll lead many astray. Another reason why people do not all come to the same conclusion on the scripture. Faulty logic. Some people do not reason correctly. They may miss the point. They reach, I can say this, they reach conclusions before they get all the facts. Remember Herod? Remember Herod? He heard about Jesus. He died John the Baptist came back to life, right? He didn't have all the facts. And sometimes when people are taught, they're taught something like all you gotta do is believe and they're given John 3.16. You don't have to be baptized because John 3.16 says all you gotta do to believe. One of the things that we need to stop doing in Bible study is trying to use a verse that does not mention a word to discuss that word. If we're gonna talk about baptism, then let's talk about verses that actually have the word in them that have something to do with baptism. Well, let's not go to a bunch of verses on belief and try to disprove baptism. Let's not go to a bunch of verses on baptism and try to say you don't have to repent. If we're going to talk about repentance, let's find the verses on repentance. <clears throat> Another reason that people come to different conclusions is a lack of thoroughness. Many people do not fully explore a subject before they form a doctrine in their mind. There is a difference between a truth and the whole truth. It's one cup discussion. In Acts chapter 16, some of our denominational friends will take verses 30 and 31 where the jailer rushes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord. They want to stop right there. All they got to do is believe and stop. Well, if they'd read the next two verses, what would they find? That Paul told them what to believe, and when they actually believed it, they were baptized. That's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right? That's the explanation. And so to take just verses 30 and 31, you don't get the whole story. Well, it's the same thing on this one cup thing. If you just take where he gave the cup to him and you stop there, and you don't study the whole thing later on, he tells you exactly what he meant by it. He meant the fruit of the vine. He says, I will not drink again this fruit of the vine until I do it in my Father's kingdom with you. That's the rest of the story. Some people want to stop without the whole story. Lack of thoroughness. The final two. Reasons people do not come to the same conclusion, regard for human authority. Some favor a teacher, a commentary, a church council, or a creed book 
over plain Bible truths. John 12, 48. And finally, self-deception. When people select their beliefs, they have filters to keep out things they don't want to believe. If one tells themselves a lie long enough and loudly enough, they'll believe it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Self-deception. I know what I want to believe. I, I've heard from some of you guys. We've talked about this. And you know people just like this. Just had a conversation today about it. You want to talk about, nope, they don't want to hear about the Bible. They made up their mind what they believe, and that's what they're going to believe. And they're going to filter out and push everything else out of the way that disagrees with what they want to believe, right? I got a question for you. Love this. If you call a horse's tail, how many of you have heard this one? I don't want to be redundant. Okay. Of course you have. You're a preacher. If you call a horse's tail a leg, how many legs does a horse have? Four. Why? Because it doesn't matter what you call the tail, it's still not a leg. So how that ties in with our point here is self-deception. We cannot tell ourselves that a horse, if you count his tail as a leg, has five legs, and we keep telling ourselves and telling ourselves and telling ourselves and telling ourselves that eventually we'll accept it, but guess what? The horse still only got four legs. And so we need to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves. The answer to our question today, can we all understand the Bible alike? Yeah. God, our creator, in his perfect wisdom, wrote it in such a fashion, divinely inspired these men to write his word in such a fashion that if we would all get rid of the self-deception and the preacheritis, if we get rid of our preconceived notions, if we get rid of our emotional bias and our vested interest and our faulty logic and our lack of thoroughness and all these other things and just simply sit down and say, what did God say? Wouldn't the world be a beautiful place? Can you imagine if every religious organization that calls itself a church on this planet, every one of them was a church of Christ, wouldn't that be awesome? And we all taught the same thing from the same. All that takes is people that are willing to do that. God had the Bible written in such a fashion that we could do that. If we just simply let him be God. All men, no matter their education, nationality, religion, sinfulness, we could all come to know, understand, and obey the truth and be saved. The only time that we don't do that is when somebody refuses to open their eyes, ears, hearts, and minds to the message and simply look at what God says and obey it by faith in simple, black and white, book, chapter, and verse language. Jesus said in John 8, verses 31 and 32, he said to those of the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, meaning live there, that word abide means set your roots down, take up habitation, and permanently reside there. If you abide in my word, <coughs> then you are truly my disciples. See, people can think they're his disciples and not truly be his disciples. But he said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Are you free tonight? Are you free?
Are you free from your sins? Have you had your sins washed away? The Bible is very clear, very easy to understand. In order for us to have our sins washed away, we need to be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, 16. Why do you delay? Arise and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Calling on the name of the Lord is not some prayer, you say, according to Acts 22.16. According to Acts 22.16, calling on the name of the Lord is calling on his authority when you are baptized into Christ because you're doing what he told you to do. And it's that that sets us free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Are you free tonight? Are you free from faulty logic? Are you free from man-made deception? Are you free? I am so grateful to God that he has made a way for me to be free tonight. Are you free? If you're not and you need to be baptized into Christ to be freed from your sins, you need the prayers of the church so you will come to understand this freedom that we have in Christ. If there's anything that we can do to help you to understand that God's word will give you everything you will ever need for both this life and the life after. And it's written so everybody can understand it. 